You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. Uh, my name is Arya Cohen-Wade, and I'll be your host today. And my guest is Kat Rosenfield, who most Blogging Heads uh, watchers and listeners probably know from her show Feminine Chaos. Uh, I'll ask her to introduce herself in any additional ways that she wants to. Uh, sure. I'm Kat Rosenfield. I am a freelance writer and, as Arya said, a co-host of Feminine Chaos here on Blogging Heads with Phoebe Maltz-Bovey, who unfortunately could not join us today. Right. So, okay, so the, 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 the loose topic for today is, does Twitter matter? And I was, a lot of these thoughts from the back of my head, but, they, but uh, your, the last episode you did with Phoebe um, kind of made me want to talk to one or both of you about, about this topic. And you, um, so you had a discussion about this. I guess we should briefly summarize it. There was a viral tweet that uh, I think it was, a, it, it was a comedy writer or at least a woman who writes in a comedic vein often um, was saying, basically, like, if you, if you, you know, go home with a guy after a first date and he does not have a bed frame, like, that's a major red flag. And you should probably get out of there. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit, I mean, it was even more in-depth than that. It was, if you don't have a bed frame, um, it means that you've never been in a relationship with a woman long enough for her to fix your life. Um, right. <laughs> so, you know, so this meant that you had been previously so undesirable. You know, the, the bed frame, the bed frame represented a lot more than just not having a mattress on the floor. Right. And I had coincidentally just put a bed frame together right around the time I was listening to this. So it struck oh, home to God. me. thank God. Yeah, and it's an, it's an annoying, you know, if you're putting it together yourself, it's an annoying task. But anyway, um, it did, and then so then this what this went, tweet went viral, and it may have even been like a, a Twitter moment or something, which is when Twitter highlights something and shows like all the replies so more people can see it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people were replying like, you know, a right on, you go girl kind of thing and saying like, yeah, you know, that makes total sense to me. Or I dated a guy who didn't have a bed frame and he was a serial killer. And then, and then there was like, a I backlash. <laughs> there's a backlash of people being like, you know, I grew up in poverty and I was like, you know, d digging ditches for a living for 20 years and I couldn't afford a bed frame. And how dare you imply that like, I didn't have my life together. Or you can imagine all sorts of other things like, you know, I'm a little person and I can't like reach, I can't like climb up into a bed that has a bed frame. And this is like, mm -hmm. this is like yeah, lots of mentions of, right. Lots of mentions of like also dogs, like large arthritic dogs who can't jump or small dogs who don't have great hops, you know, consider the dogs also. This mm -hmm. was a very discriminatory tweet <laughs> against dogs of all kinds. Right. So. So yeah, so you guys you guys analyze this and and and, uh, and I kind of tore into the original <laughs> conception of it, and it just made me think like, you know, th this is like a perfect thing that happens on Twitter and wouldn't like you know this this expression probably would not happen uh, absent social media because it's so kind of like I mean you can imagine like a, like a stand up comic maybe saying something like this, but it mm. wouldn't like it wouldn't go viral absent the <laughs> the social media part of it and. And yeah, it just like, you know, it, it made it made some people very happy because they were like, yeah, yeah, this chimes with my life experience and made other people feel like they were being disrespected or, uh, you know, erased or they weren't being seen or something like that. Uh, their experiences weren't valid and that everyone's fighting each other. And the original tweet continues to get more, you know, pushed up in the algorithm and more people follow the, the woman who originally tweeted it. And, and then eventually it like flames out and, and the next thing happens i was thinking that like is it like does this have any real world analog like is this is this like just sort of this you know are there people out there who are really concerned about bed frames and um and like did the original woman you know really care about bed frames or did she just come up with a clever idea that would be like a, a single joke in a stand-up set and all the people who are <laughs> expressing like great offense at this because they couldn't afford a bed frame for 15 years until they like, you know, saved up and finally purchased that first bed frame, but they still had like a very uh, like meaningful, like relationship with a woman. Um, during that time, like, were they really outraged about all this or is this all like kind of just a performance and you have these, you know, weird people who spend a lot of time on Twitter and I include myself among that group of weird people. And, uh, we are not like the average Americans who are going about their days, like getting things done and, you know, picking up their kids from soccer practice and stuff like that. Um, like we are like thinking of funny things to, to write on Twitter for some reason. And 
like it, yeah so is this all just like i don't know is is it's, I, I don't even know how to describe it exactly it's like an epiphenomenon or something it's like doesn't like you know it's a wisp it doesn't truly exist so what what do you think about this i don't know you may have answered your own question like several times in that entire <laughs> spiel i mean the thing about twitter is obviously yeah no not everyone's on it at the same time it is sort of a microcosm for larger trends social trends discussions that are happening um you know in all kinds of spaces um, and so I think like, I mean, like you were saying this thing about the bed frame, um, sure. It feels like a bit, it feels like something that, you know, you, you'd see somebody talking about on stage. Um, the fact that it's instead of being talked about on social media introduces this interactive element into it where, you know, people are not just inclined, but encouraged to take it much more personally. Um, and that includes the people who are like, yeah, you know, I went home with a guy who turned out to have no bed frame and, you know, he like tied me to the radiator and beheaded me. And, you know, it's, it's incredible that I'm typing this now because I'm in fact dead. Um, <laughs> but that also, you know, invites the opposite reaction of people who read this and feel judged rightly or not. And are like, you know, you're painting with a kind of a broad brush here to say, you know, that it's a red flag for a person not to have a bed frame. Um, you know, isn't this classist? Isn't this ableist? Isn't this biased against small and large dogs? You know, um, <laughs> and of course, like all of the, the taking it personally is what fuels engagement. Um, so I think, oh boy, here comes the cat. <laughs> Yeah. Bed frames not biased against cats. They can jump very high <laughs> yeah, onto <laughs> anything. So like I mean what but when you ask the question like does it matter? Um I think because Twitter represents such a particular collection of people, like yeah, you know, the average American is not on Twitter, but the people who are on there overwhelmingly are people who kind of set the tone for culture, um, like for what gets talked about: journalists, comedians, you know, artists of all kinds, politicians, um, you know. And if the you pre had, the president of the United States, yes, exactly. So, and like. Imagine that you had like an actual physical space in which all of those people were all spending a significant portion of their day interacting with each other, like sometimes getting into fights, you know, but overall, like there was a lot of conversation happening there. If that were like a room or a clubhouse and someone said, but what does what happened in this space really matters? You'd be like, yes, of course it fucking matters. You know, mm. like it's, you know, it's a full of the most influential people in the country all talking about the stuff that the rest of us end up talking about because they talked about it first. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in that sense, yeah, you know, it, it certainly matters what happens on Twitter. Yeah. And that's an interesting metaphor of like the clubhouse. Um, uh, uh, it, it reminds me of a previous metaphor I've heard, which is that Twitter is kind of an infinite, um, like middle school cafeteria, uh, where you have all these little groups and they're all talking to each other, but then people can overhear, each other's conversation sometimes and then something that was happening in one group can jump to the other group so like the you know the people who are just talking about like a show on the cw network uh, that they really like but then someone says something really wild and then that thing can go can can hit the stand-up comedian table and the politics table and the media table and now everyone in the in the uh, cafeteria is talking about it at the same time even though it was just the you know, the CW network uh, fan table to, to begin with. Yes. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's, you know, that's akin to one of my favorite metaphors about Twitter, which is that it's like writing on a bathroom wall, but everyone is writing on the bathroom wall. Um, you know, so <laughs> similar, similar dynamics. All, middle school always enters into it, though, which is funny. <laughs> right. Um, OK, so another aspect of it that I wanted to bring in, and this is this is a very lame thing to do, but I'm going to read an old tweet of mine, because I think it does encapsulate this. And <laughs> yes, this is a tweet. I tweeted this a year and a half ago. Uh, one thing Twitter has taught me is that when people get mad, they often prefer to stay mad instead of getting less mad. Um, and so when I, so you often see people who, you know, outrage is a very popular thing to do on Twitter. And then like, there's some point where they can calm down or like, obviously they can just stop tweeting and leave and go do something else, but they have an off, off ramp or something. Someone apologizes, you know, it seems like, OK, we can call it on this one and move on to the next thing. And instead, people are like, that apology wasn't good enough. And here are the seven reasons why that apology wasn't good enough. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. The bulleted lists of why <laughs> the apology wasn't a good enough apology is 
I mean, an absolutely amazing, like if anybody ever makes a museum of, you know, the, of the discourse circa right now, the, the reasons why I'm not accepting your apology because it didn't satisfy me is going to be just like a, an exhibit of its own. Right. So I think, I think, yeah, I think most normal people, if they were angry, um, like once that initial like surge of emotion began to fade, they, they would not like seek out other things to make them angry. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But I think that like online, the type of person who ends up on Twitter and then the dynamics of Twitter itself encourage this staying mad kind of thing. Well, yeah, I want to put a pin in that. The type of person who ends up on Twitter and who does this because the people who who disengage like a normal person who are like, cool, like, oh, it's just a misunderstanding. I'm going to go outside now. You don't see that. That never comes across your timeline. Like you might, you might happen across it by accident. And then usually and there's always one person who did that. Who's like, wow, it was really refreshing to see this, like to see this fight not happen because everybody involved is a normal person. Um, but Twitter is a place where, especially in certain kind of sub-communities, uh, I think amongst people who spend a lot of time online and for whom Twitter is actually maybe a primary, if not a sole social outlet, um, you know, you want to stay in that space. And a lot of the time that means staying mad. Um, and, you know, this idea of somebody like finding reasons to reinvest in their anger, that's something that people also do in real life um, because they have personality disorders. And mm -hmm. I mean, you know, not to be flippant about it, but that's a real life thing. It's just that when you do it offline, face to face, it does not make you popular. People tend to start to walk away from you because, you know, nobody wants to be around that. The dynamics of online are just so flipped that this very anti-social behavior ends up in a lot of cases being rewarded, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That, that seems true. And so part of it is this, there, there was an academic finding. Actually, I tried to find it um, before we started taping, but I couldn't find it quickly, but I'll see if I can find the link that, <laughs> that, that looked at what makes a tweet go viral. And one of the key parts of it was um, like emotionally charged language. So mm -hmm. you could tweet something like, you know, um, Ate at McDonald's today wasn't very good, and that's the tweet. So no one's gonna care about that tweet. And then you can tweet something like, "Ate at McDonald's today and it was the worst fucking meal I've ever had in my life. I almost jumped out the window and threw myself into traffic." Um, so that's more likely to get some engagement on the platform than right. than the original tweet. And this goes in all sorts of you know politics is a very obvious place where, where this goes where where there's constant outrage on both sides, and. Um, you know, the, you know, resistance type people are always looking for like some new fact about Russia or something to get angry about. And some of these facts are real and some of these facts are, you know, don't really pan out and, and it doesn't matter. And then, you know, the Trump, the mega people are always, you know, looking for some insult that someone did to Trump and how, how awful it is. And Trump definitely plays, plays into this. But, um, yeah, it's just, you know, most just like being highly like emotionally reactive, like, you know, the, the, yeah, like you said, this is kind of an indication that you're not in a, a really, healthy mental state um, if you're ready to fly off the handle at uh, <laughs> because your McDonald's meal wasn't so good or whatever, you know, whatever happened. And then, and like, this really does the McDonald's meal I just made up, but like the kind of customer service interactions that happen um, where someone, uh, you know, on one side of it, it's like uh, a, a African-American customer is treated rudely by a white uh, employee. And maybe the other side of it is like, uh, these things that um, were like uh, in Starbucks, a uh, cop orders a coffee and the barista writes big on it. Although I think many, most, if not all of these have been proven to be hoaxes. Um, and just there the fact one that, real one and then one hoax. Okay. But so the fact that someone yeah. would hoax this, you know, just is part of the whole maelstrom of, of trying to get attention online. Um, but yeah, but you just like the, you know, the, 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 the most out, outrageous, emotionally charged thing, is going to get you attention <laughs> because that's what people gets people riled up and then they hit like or fave and retweet. And so, and then it goes viral and then you feel good for some reason. <laughs> about it. You know, maybe you feel good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I mean, it's, it's yeah. So like one of the things that you kind of like circled in that piece of the conversation, but didn't quite land on is that it's not just about negative language, but if you can find a way to kind of lay claim to the cachet of victimhood, um, online, that is going to play really, really well. Right. Um, you know, I'm outraged. It's like something bad was done to me. And it's even better if you can identify the person who did the bad thing. Um, you know, Twitter loves a target 
And I think that that's, you know, maybe an important part of this too. But again, like, you know, the, I mean, the president is a great example. President, like, for better or for worse, is really good at Twitter. And that tells you something about Twitter, probably. Yeah. And then, the, I mean, the flip side to that is that um, extreme positive emotion can get you, as it doesn't always have to be negative, extreme positive emotion can get you attention. You know, you see a movie, this is the greatest fucking movie I've ever seen in my life. You know, Stan culture, uh, everything Taylor Swift or Beyonce does is perfection. I mean, you see these tweets about the um, this uh, uh, Korean uh, boy group that is called BTS. Um, that's like, it's uh, roughly the equivalent of Backstreet Boys in Korea, except they're like 10 times as popular and... We, we just we just left the my, my line of like cultural knowledge base somewhere okay. way in the dust. So you're gonna have I, to so I often <laughs> if, if there's a trending topic that I don't know what it means, I, I often click on it just to, just to satisfy my curiosity. And it's often about the the kind of like dramas of the world of K-pop uh, because a lot of uh, I think the answer is a lot of South Korean like teenagers uh, tweet in English on Twitter. And so you have you know this one is broke up with this one and you know so this one had fainted on stage and you just like and, and people were like pledging their life to them and then there's the whole you know phoebe waller bridge run me over with your car kind of thing or like right. you, you know you're just expressing this expressing a devotion to someone in the most in, insane wacky way and even though that like some of that is <laughs> tongue-in-cheek um it's just like that's an extreme emotion and people wouldn't have been saying that 20 years ago um, about whatever the, their cultural heroes were at that moment and yeah that's the kind of stuff you know, it just like rate like it doesn't <laughs> raving about something and saying it's the greatest ever uh, will get you attention as well because it, it, that is emotional language also. Mm-hmm. Um, so why don't we? Okay, so that provides a transition point to the Oscars and something okay. something that you wrote about. Wait, we've successfully skirted the fact that you're obviously like a super secret closet K-pop fan. Um, <laughs> um I you know, I It's just research. <laughs> I just got curious. No. I'm, <laughs> well, I'm you know, kidding. you you click once because you're curious and you're like, "Wow, these guys have some really good dance moves and like, you know, they're they're very handsome and um so okay, so so the Oscar nominations came out earlier this week and I think what's interesting about them, so this, there's been an ongoing theme the past couple of years about how few, uh, how many white people, what, uh, what a high percentage of white people are nominated and, you know, men in the technical and like directing and writing categories as opposed to women. And so, um, and then it's just the fact that like the Oscars are pretty lame and, you know, like Green Book won last time a movie that no one like under the age of 50 enjoyed or saw or anything. I didn't see it. Um, and so, yeah, but people have been complaining about how lame the Oscars are, you know, for as long as, as I've been paying attention to this. But um, but I, I did notice that the um, the conversation on Twitter was it was not it, so there wasn't that positive like hooray for whatever, you know, hooray for whatever person like Martin Scorsese got, you know, his 15th nomination or something. It right. was all outrage about who didn't get nominated and um, especially uh uh, people of color or women who didn't get nominated. The director, the director category was all men, even though I didn't see it, but lots of people are saying that um, little women is, is a very, very well directed movie by Greta Gerwig. Um, and then, so, okay, before we go on to your article, what did, what did you think about that? Like reaction of, of how people took it? Well, okay. So, um, I want to plug a favorite writer of mine. Her name is Sasha Stone. She has a website called Awards Daily. She has been covering Oscar chatter since before anybody else was doing it. She's been doing it for like 20 years. Um, when she started her website, I don't know, it was like Geocities in 1999 or something like that. <laughs> so um, she has a great analysis of why the outrage over Little Women not getting a directing uh, nomination for Greta Gerwig, why that's fake news. And I found it very, very compelling. Um, Like, she really knows her stuff. She outlines the entire history, you know, with due acknowledgement to the fact that, yes, historically, the Oscars, and particularly the the director's category, has been a major boys club. I mean, there have been, I mean, I guess it's like, something like six women in history have ever been nominated for a directorial Oscar. It's insane. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe course, only one winner, Catherine Bigelow. Yeah, Catherine Bigelow. Yeah, she's the only one. I mean, it's nuts. Like, and and there's absolutely, like, to, to try to claim that sexism doesn't have something to do with that is a completely bonkers mm-hmm. argument. Like, clearly mm-hmm. it does. Um, that said, mm-hmm. Little Women 
is one of these movies that um, my my dog has strong feelings about this too. Um, it's one of these movies that the kind of media, and particularly like the take media, the feminist media that you know um, that that fuels so much of like the most clicky stories online, really coalesced around the narrative that this was the best movie ever, um, and in a way that goes against what actual popular reaction to it was. It's not that it was an unpopular movie or that people didn't like it, but it's arguably just not as well made as a lot of the other films. And this was a a really big year, or 2019 rather, was a really big year for really, really good movies. Um, And that if you take a step back and you kind of look at the landscape and you look at Little Women in terms of like how it was directed, some of the choices that she made as compared with something like Jojo Rabbit or 1917 or even Joker, the, the quality is just not the same. Um, and that if we weren't all so incredibly invested in the kind of like outrage culture that's going on right now, where we want to sort of seize on a narrative of unfairness every year. Um, that people would be maybe a little bit more, um, uh, I don't want to say complacent. That's not the right word, but it's failing me. You know, they would, they, they wouldn't be freaking out about it the way they were. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's, you know, I haven't seen little women yet. Um, I, you know, I will eventually, although as a child of the nineties, I have pretty strong feelings about the 1994 version with Winona Ryder. That's always going to be my version. Um, but you know, I'm open, I'm open to it. Um, but yeah, you know, I think the thing is like people have gotten into the mode of getting mad about the Oscars and this year, um, the, uh, piece that Sasha Stone wrote actually does a really great job of kind of just putting up like on screen, um, you know, in a way that you can really see it, how in the bag, say like the New York times was for the idea that little women was going to like win all the awards, um, in a way that set up an ongoing outrage narrative to continue when it didn't get nominated. Uh-huh. So it's really, it's really interesting to see how okay, that Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll link to that article uh, below this uh, video on Blogging Heads TV. Um, yeah, that's interesting. And I, so I actually did not see that many movies this past year, so I didn't see any of the ones that, I didn't see Little Women Joker, uh, 1917, or Jojo Rabbit yet. Um, and, but what's, I mean, okay, so, yeah, like I said, there's, you know, it's it's not a surprise that, like, the people, like, the po- kind of the popular consensus as to what was a good movie does not end up being the Oscar nominee or winner. Like, it's often, like, this is just, like, such a running joke that, you know, who like, who really, really, really liked Green Book and are people in 10 years going to be, like, looking back on Green Book as a masterpiece of, you know, 2018 c- c- cinema. I kind of, I kind of doubt it. Oh, they didn't, I didn't actually see it because who cares? But, um... <laughs> Oh, <laughs> my minor detail. But I, mean, I, you know, clearly enough people liked it that it a you know made it into the categories and then b you know won the award. So you know, right. And there's, there's also all these like maybe perhaps um, the woman you mentioned you know goes into this kind of stuff. Like this is not like a pure artistic achievement award. Like there's all these politics that go into it. Who whose turn is it? Who deserves it? Sometimes the acting awards go to people who are in, like, a later stage in their career, who were, you know, didn't get an award in the earlier stage in the career, in which they did, uh, they gave better performances because people say, like, oh, it's time for so-and-so to get it, and there's a sentimental favorite kind of thing, and I'll just, you know, who knows, maybe someone is, like, it's an open secret in Hollywood that person X is an asshole, and, you know, no one likes him, and so we're not going to vote for him, even though he did a really good job, um, you know, playing a comic book villain or something. I just made that up. I don't know anything about Joaquin Phoenix yes. being a lot, an asshole. A lot goes into it. A lot, a lot, a lot goes into it. And, and, so. then, and then the, the, just the, the, the other irony is just, like, why, you know, people get so people get outraged, people indicate outrage on Twitter, who knows whether they're really, truly outraged about this, um, about this, like, musty um, thing that, like, everyone agrees is, like, very compromised by all sorts of things that are not just artistic merit. And then it's like, you know, 
you know, our favorite person is didn't get nominated for the shitty award. Like, should we be mad that they didn't get nominated for the shitty award? Or should we be like, you know, there's like Avengers Endgame people out there who thought Avengers Endgame should have been should have got like a best picture nomination or something like that. Like it made yeah. it made a billion dollars. Like, isn't that enough for you people? Like, you know, <laughs> comic book movies rule the land now. Um, and but like, I don't know. But yeah, so the the, the Academy generally does not acknowledge uh, special effects extravaganza type movies they did with um, uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, the third one, and maybe a couple others, but you know, mostly that's not the kind of thing they're into. And so it's like, I don't know. I mean, there's like there's so many awards out there, um, you know, all these ones you never think about until like you hear that so and so won the New York Film Critics Circle Award or whatever it's called. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. there's there's just like fifty of these award ceremonies that happen every year. And they all go like it's not always the same thing, and they all most most good movies get some sort of recognition, and then like I don't know, it's on to the next thing. Um, but yeah, I, I think I just thought it was noteworthy that I I didn't see anyone celebrating. I just saw people outraged about snubs. There was no one being like, "Hooray for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood!" Um, it's gonna do it this year. People were like, uh, "No Aquafina uh, <laughs> nomination? How dare you!" Yeah, I mean, I guess that's just sort of how the conversation is framed. I mean, I, you know, my only Oscars tweet was a positive one, and it did not honestly get a whole lot of engagement. I'm just in the bag for Klaus as best animated feature film, and it's probably not going to win because Toy Story 4 will win. But mm. it's a really, it's a really sweet movie and beautifully. Um, you know what? See, I, made. I did see that tweet, and I and I, mm. I think I watched a little bit of the. Um of what you embedded in there. So what, yeah, what is that film? Cause I never heard of it before. Um, it's a Christmas movie. It's an animated Christmas movie. It's on Netflix. Um, you have, uh, uh, what's that guy's name? He was in Rushmore, the Jason Schwartzman. Schwartzman. Yeah. Um, voices the main character who is, um, a sort of a rich kid who gets sent to be a postmaster in this like middle of nowhere Island that is dominated by two warring, um, clans of people who have like an old family grudge. Uh, I don't remember what the origins are. Um, and, uh, Joan Cusack is one of the voices of like the matriarch of the family. And, um, anyway, to not make this too convoluted, um, it becomes an origin story for Santa Claus uh, coming down chimneys and bringing children toys. Um, And the Santa figure is voiced by J.K. Simmons, which is just like so good. Um, (laughs) But I mean, just like, you know, as an animated film, which, you know, I don't watch a ton of, but um, have gotten a little more into since I started getting into comic book stuff. Um, it's just like the the quality of the art is really beautiful and really different, which um, is something that you saw awarded at the Oscars when they decided to um, give it to Into the Spider-Verse, which was like also very well deserving, also really looked different. It mm-hmm. was just like, you know, we've seen Pixar's style, um, you know, and it's, it's cool to see things kind of like branch out. Um, you know, beyond that, also beyond the sort of flat two-dimensional, like the DreamWorks sort of look that, um, you know, I think we all got used to in like like the late 90s, early 2000s. Anyway, Klaus is a good movie. Um, I highly recommend that everybody go watch it. It won't take you very long. And uh, yeah. And it's it's a full, it's in the full length. It's not the short. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, um, I think it's like 90 minutes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'll check it out. Okay. So why don't we talk about the piece that you wrote, um, was it for where did, what? It was a British outlet that you. Were uh, it was the it was the U.S. version of the Spectator. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so okay, so the the background, which you can fill in, is has to do with uh, Stephen King. Um, yeah, you know, Stephen now, King, horror writer, uh, writing some tweets about uh, his. He's part of the Academy. And, yes. Uh, about about his votes this year. Right. So he wrote two tweets, which he made the mistake of not threading. Not that it necessarily would have mattered, but you know. It didn't help. Um, the first one was noting that, you know, yes, he he's an Academy member. He was in a position to vote this year. Um, he only gets to vote on, um, I think, like three different writing categories. So he wasn't really in a position to influence the diversity discussion one way or another. Um, that was tweet number one. He said, that said... I would never consider diversity. Um, actually, I should, I should make sure that I'm quoting him correctly. I'm going to look up this. I'm going to look up this tweet. I'm going to try to look up this tweet. Um, 
to see, to make sure that I got it right. Mm -hmm. Um, But what he, what he said was essentially that he considers quality over diversity. And, um, People got very, very upset about this. Okay, here is. I would never consider diversity in matters of art, only quality. It seems to me that to do otherwise would be wrong. And people, of course, got very upset about this. Um, Everyone was like, you know, I always used to respect you. And then some people were more like, I wish the van that ran you over in 1999 had backed up and done the job, you know, finished the job. Um, Yeah, you know, I mean, typical Twitter (laughs) Twitter behavior. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, you know, he had, he had weighed in on this and I think that a lot of the outrage honestly stemmed from the fact that he said out loud what a lot of people think, but realize they're not supposed to say out loud. Um, but what I wanted to write about was partially the predictability of this or like, I mean, Stephen King is as left wing as they come. Um, and the idea that he's now the enemy of, you know, the politically progressive coalition on Twitter is just so bonkers. I mean, you couldn't find a better example of people on the left eating one of their own and, and for what, you know, what, what's the point. Um, but also when he says that, you know, to consider diversity, ahead of quality or to consider anything but quality would be wrong. Um, He's making a moral argument that I think people are not engaging with and that they maybe should engage Mm -hmm. with um, because what he's expressing is something that's fundamental to the values of a lot of liberal people, um, you know, who are not prepared to just trade in this moral center that they've grown up with something that they hold dear and that, you know, it was really fundamental to how they conceive of what is good and how to be a good person in the world um, in favor of what's being pushed by some people on the progressive left, which is this very sort of identity politics, politics, <clears throat> excuse me, inflected version of, um, you know, of a belief system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess a few thoughts on this. Like, why is Stephen King tweeting? Like, you know, he has written, like, he's one of the most prolific and successful authors of, like, the second half of the 20th century, continues to have bestsellers. Like, does he need, like, why, like, why, and he's, he must be, like, 75 years old or something at this point. Like, why is he, like, on Twitter, like, someone needs to tell him just, you know, stick to the books and, like, the things but that he, make you money. He likes and, it. I mean, he must like it. Also, I mean, he uses Twitter a lot of the time. Like, I mean, I follow him and he is constantly popping up in my feed, like poking at Susan Collins, uh, who he's trying very hard to get ousted um, in the upcoming election. I think she's I think she's up in 2020 mm-hmm. for yeah. re-election. He, and he wants her gone. So, I mean, yeah, you know, he he's a political presence on Twitter, among other things. OK, so he's so OK. So he's not just, you know you know, sharing his thoughts of the day or something. He's trying to get something done. So that makes some sense. I guess the other reaction is like, you know, he kind of framed this in a way like, um, you know, diversity and quality. And it, it, the way he set it up was kind of like, uh, and he was thinking of it about like, as a, an affirmative action sort of thing. Like there's mm-hmm. like the movies that reach the quality threshold that they deserve to be celebrated. And these are mostly made by white people or feature white people. And then there's the movies that like, don't quite measure up to the quality level of the Oscars. And these are made uh, by people who aren't white. And, you know, some people would vote for the ones that aren't as good because the people who made them aren't white um, because, you know, for, for various reasons one can imagine doing so. I don't, I don't think that's like, so that's kind of maybe somewhat akin to like university admissions or something where you have like a student who isn't quite up to the normal level um, and is a racial minority and then, like, you give him or her, like, a boost uh, or something like that. And, you know, this is, continues to be controversial <laughs> in America, mm-hmm. but this is, like, basically how it's done. And, like, I don't think, you know, people, like, I don't think that's, like, the right frame to apply to this. Like, you have movies that are made by, within, you know, made by established people. And because of the, the way the system is, the established people are mostly white men. And uh, they mostly make movies about white people also. And, uh, and then you have like some people working within the system, some people working outside the like main system who are making like smaller movies, like the Aquafina movie. What is it called? The farewell Farewell. or something, uh, which I did not see, but got very good reviews. And then 
that, like, that's not like they're, they, they want a leg up. It's more like they're doing something that's a little different from with what would normally come out of the system. Like that, that movie, The Farewell, like 90% of the dialogue is in Mandarin and is subtitled, but it's an American movie uh, mm-hmm. made, distributed in America for American audiences. So they're, yeah, so they're doing the Chinese something did not like it. Um, I think you know, kind of a key point there. They felt that it was insulting. <laughs> that's interesting. Um, so that's so that's that's taking a that's taking a risk. I you know I didn't see the movies. So I don't know if I would think that it paid off, but doing something different and um, and so that's not like oh, let's give this kid from the inner city whose SAT scores are 100 points lower, like, a boost or something. It's just like, this is this is something different. And maybe the old white people who <laughs> constitute the academy, um, they kind of want the same thing they've, they've mostly gotten, which is, like, you know, movies by white people, about white people, or movies like Green Book, in which, like, the racial narrative fits into this these, like, certain, like, tropes, that evil word of, you know, like, the... Uh, black savior teaching the white person like about what, what racism really means or something like that. Um, so yeah, so I, 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 that was my, that was my objection to it. It was like, you know, if he, if he like thinks that the, like, there's a bunch of movies out there that are made by non-white people and they don't quite measure up, then like, that is kind of like moving towards like a kind of racist belief because that doesn't make sense to me that like, uh, people of non-white races can't make good movies. Uh, you can see how they can be locked out of like the system, uh, the Hollywood system already. But, but I think yeah. that's sort of you know that's where it kind of comes in is that you know overwhelmingly the people who are in the upper echelons of Hollywood, um, you know, I mean, it's like Hollywood is like the Ivy Leagues. You know, it's not a diverse place in terms of who's successful there. And you have all of these family dynasties and, you know, people with influential friends or relatives, people who come from wealth. Um, you know, by the, by the time you're in a position to be honored at the Oscars, like you're already in, you know, in the 1% basically. Um, so the idea that it's, you know, any kind of a surprise that the people that you see on that stage tend to look a certain way and come from a certain background, like, I mean, you know, obviously it's not. Um, I think, you know, I think that your interpretation or at least the one that you ran with just now of King's tweet is probably not as charitable as he deserves, <laughs> um, especially because he did kind of, he stepped up afterward and pointed out that, you know, when he thinks about diversity, the issue is, you know, you want to get rid of the gatekeeping that happens beforehand that keeps these filmmakers out of, say, the studio system. Um, you know, you want you want them to have the opportunity to make the art you know, way, you know, several steps back so that it can then be considered come awards season. Um, at the same time, there's also an argument to be made that, like, let's not focus so fully on awards season. Award, and the Oscars especially, it's like one tiny little slice that, you know, uh, that matters. Yeah, I mean, it matters, but, you know, not to the main movie going public. Um, it doesn't determine what films make money for their creators. Um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, it's not the be all and end all of whether a person gets to make another movie. So, you know, there's, there's more to consider there. Um, I think that what King is getting at is, you know, at the point at which you're sitting down um, to, evaluate the films that are available and it's and it's like 60 you know it's like 60 movies um you know it's it's a not inconsiderable task to watch and form an opinion about each of them Mm -hmm. um that you know he is just going to watch them and decide what he thinks is good and what he thinks is bad and there's gonna there's not going to be a point at which he says well i wouldn't have voted for this one but the filmmaker is black so you know nominated. Um, and it's hard to imagine, honestly, that if he said that out loud, that people would think it was really super great. Um, I think that basically yeah. what, you know, what people want is, is just for him to, you know, to, to keep quiet because I think what actually what he's doing, you know, what he describes himself doing is basically what everybody does. I mean, you know, in, at least in all likelihood, um, but they don't want it highlighted. 
particularly not by somebody who has like a bajillion followers on Twitter and a lot of clout in literary circles. And yeah. not somebody who looks the way that Stephen King does. Um, you know, there was obviously predictably the response to him was a lot of like, shut up, old white man. You know, you're pulling the ladder up behind you, which, you know, that that of all things is really not that's not a fair criticism of Stephen King. Like, say what you want to about him, but he's definitely done a lot in his life and in his career to, you know, help other writers and writers who don't look like him, you know, get a leg up and succeed. So, yeah. And if someone, you know, if someone said, especially a white person, if they were like, well, I watched, um, uh, Queen and Slim, is that what that movie was called? Mm -hmm. It's called, um, and, you know, I thought it was kind of mediocre, but I voted for it just because the cast is black or the director is black or whatever. Like, that, that kind of, um, you know, uh, racialized thinking uh, would, would, would garner its own backlash. And, and, like, there's people who think both ways, I'm, I'm sure, privately. Um, you know, there's, you know, there's just, like, you know, support black-owned businesses. Like, that's, you know, that's a kind of thinking in, in terms of race that, like is fine with me and most people maybe there's some people who would object to that kind of thinking um and you could be like well this store i go to like isn't as good as is <laughs> some other store run by some other type of person but i'm just gonna keep going there because i want someone who maybe had a harder lot in life than me to succeed but then when it yeah but then when it comes to the great oscars you know the the things that we say this is the greatest thing this is this is the movie that is the greatest uh of the year um yeah you know it's, it's the different. The illusion, at least, of purity, I think, you know, of like, you know, we're not, you know, we're honoring the best of the best, the cream of the crop. And it's like this spectacle, you know, there is the glitz and the gold statues and everyone's swanning around and there are $5,000 gowns, you know, with like $6,000 of injectables in their faces. <laughs> they all look 25, even though many of them are in their 60s, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think, you know, maybe what you know, part of it is that it just like, it's the whole package, you know, it, it's supposed to feel a certain way. It's this idealized thing. Um, and when people pull back the curtain on it in these various ways, it, you know, some people feel that it ruins things. Right. And yeah, I just like, I, I'm, I'm kind of reiterating myself, but like the Academy has so many biases that go into it. There's a certain type of movie that is the Academy Ooh. movie. I just remembered something that okay. I think is worth um, pointing out. So, you know, in light of all of the criticism that it's come in for recently, the Academy actually did um, last year, and they made a big noise about oh, this. Right, yeah. um, they introduced 842 new members, um, half of whom were women, you know, lots and lots of, you know, of marginalized people from marginalized communities, women and people of color. Um, and unfortunately, like, you know, I think for a while at least until the the you know initial entry bar is a little bit different and allows more and different people telling more and different kinds of stories through what you're going to find is overall despite their respective identity categories oscar voters are still going to have a kind of a shared idea of what a quality film is um, and then you cannot rely on people to vote for instance, for a woman director, just because they themselves are women, it just doesn't work that way. Right. Um, and just uh, to, to just complete my thought, you know, the, the Academy likes a certain type of film. It's usually uh, like a, a, histor a historical drama much more is like the category that they seem to over praise more than anything else. You know, there's not that many comedies that ever win um, best picture. And I'm actually, I just, I'm just Googling the best picture winners from the past, uh, 20 years, like, there's some duds in here. I mean, Crash is an infamous one. Argo. That's the one that makes me angrier. Angrier <laughs> than anything else. You know, Argo, which when I saw was just a perfectly fine, average B movie, but it was like, you know, for whatever reason it won. Like, are people still really watching Chicago, the musical from 2003? Um, like, I I don't think I've watched that since it, since it came out, and I think I, I, I joked on Twitter when people were doing their best of, like, best of the the decade in film list. I said the best film of the decade is uh, Children of Men, which came out in 2003, um, mm -hmm. because I still think it's one of the best movies ever made. Uh, I don't think that movie received any Academy recognition, and it was the same year, I think, as, as Chicago. Um, and so that was the kind of, you know, they wanted, like, 
like people tap dancing and Richard Gere like <laughs> you know doing flips right. or whatever it was, as opposed to like an actual like interesting movie that like is resident re- resident for me fifteen years after it came well, out. Well, I mean, the Academy's tastes are always reflective of what's happening in the country at large. So Chicago would have been like what you know. That was that came out in 2002. That was like a year after um, 9-11. So, you know, you've got I think, you know, there, you you get like a mood happening. Um, I'm, I'm now looking at this thing like, you know, 2010, The Hurt Locker, you know, that's like a, a war movie that, um, you know, is fairly gritty, directed by a woman. Um, what was happening in 2010 that made it possible for that to become a front runner like who knows? Um, but then again, like in 2013, you had Zero Dark Thirty up for Best Picture, and um, for whatever reason, you know, even though there were you know a fair number of women in the Academy at that time, um, you know, they voted for Argo anyway. It's just one of these things where it's like you know what what dictates the tastes of the people who are making these decisions. It's you know a whole lot of different things. Yes. And, you know, I guess the, the the other thing I would maybe the last thing I would say about this is like, you know, this is not um, this is not the Olympics. Um, it is not like we can say, oh, this person ran the fastest and they should get the medal. Like this is all subjective. It's art. It's movies. The argument continues forever, whether something is good or not. And uh, just because just because the Academy says it's good, as I said, Crash was good and Argo was good and Million Dollar Baby was good doesn't necessarily mean it's actually good. I thought Argo was good. I don't know. I mean, when I'm looking back at like, you know, the... Uh, it wasn't, I, well, it wasn't the best picture I saw that year for sure. That's okay. Um, you know, we're allowed but maybe to they wanted to give it to Ben Affleck. You know, that's... Different that, tastes. That's well, I mean, it. he'd already, he'd already won the best screenplay for um, Good Will Hunting, you know, ages ago. This so, um, but you know, when you look at back at like the past 10 years, like last year was Green Book, um, before that was The Shape of Water, a fantasy about a woman who has sex with a fish. Yes, that was, um, that was very surprising. But in some ways, that was like it's Guillermo del Toro's turn to, to get to get the thing. Granted, you know, the fact that he didn't get it for Pan's Labyrinth, I think, was, you know, considered an outrage. Yes, um, it's, it's, so, it's not yeah. unusual for the, the the thing that is best in a, in a movie maker's career to, right. to be ignored. And then the exactly. Later on is, is what is, I mean, what did Scorsese win for? Not it wasn't his best thing, was it? Was it like. I, uh, da, 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 that's a good question. Um, did he win for? I'm, I'm looking. I'm not seeing. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe has he won Best Picture? Maybe he, he has. He, so, he won for The Departed. Of oh, all okay, things. okay. Right. I mean, and that was the same thing. People were like, "Well, The Departed is fine, but like, is this? You know, this isn't as good as Goodfellas and Raging Bull. Yeah, and exactly. Driver. Exactly. Um, okay, so the Oscars suck. I think we can both agree. Um, okay, so let me just see if there's anything else I wanted to say on um, about Twitter, our, our original topic, uh, before we wrap up. I mean, I guess like just there's just part of it that's like what 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 is weird about Twitter is you have like the elite in some sectors, like the president of the United States, politicians, media, uh, celebrities. Uh, who knows if celebrities really pay attention? And then you just have this you know, the seething masses of normal, more or less people who don't have any public platform who are on there. And those are the type. And so when there's like a pile on, it's not usually like 50 media folk like piling on. It's like one media folk will like retweet something. And then like their, you know, like normal person followers do the pile on. But then like what, what kind of psychopath spends time on Twitter you know, one must ask, and I, like I said, including myself in this, um, you know, so it's, it's just like, it is weird that things that, you know, like things that, things that go viral on Twitter, especially, um, you know, can tend to shape events because of the way the like user base of Twitter is set up with so many media people on there so things travel from tw- the twitterverse into the me- the actual real mediaverse somewhat more easily than like happens on facebook even though like two billion people are on facebook and and like normal quote-unquote people are on facebook 
Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing about Twitter, too, is that journalists, um, I think at this point, it's safe to say, are really over-reliant um, on Twitter as a medium for sourcing stories, which is why in like the past 10 years or so, we've gotten this plethora, like every time, you know, uh, an outrage happens, it'll be like, you know, you'll have six stories in major outlets that are like, oh, you know, people are, you know, people are boycotting the new Star Wars because they can't handle there being a black stormtrooper. Um, and then you go and you look for the source of this story and it's three anonymous people on Twitter who have like 12 followers each. Yeah. And there, I think, becomes a question of our journalists who are using this as an easy way to, you know, to find a kind of a clickbaity story about an outrage happening. Are they actually creating a monster so that they can then write about it and other people can go fight it? Um, there's, you know, I, I mean, it's almost like a moral question, like or an ethical one. Are you, are you doing the right thing when you create a phenomenon out of whole cloth that then maybe becomes a thing only because you made people believe it was to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see that. And anything, I, I think possibly the tide has shifted on this cheap tactic of plucking five people from Twitter to, to put makes that this is an article that like Buzzfeed or something would have done. I mean, they still do shit like this, but I feel like people are like, they just, they just did it. They just did it with this thing about, um, zoomers calling gen Xers, Karen, the Karen generation. It's not <laughs> happening. Um, I mean, I guess it is now because thanks Buzzfeed. Okay. Um, well, may, okay. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Buzzfeed is still doing this, but yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> it should be embarrassing at this point, like to be doing that kind of shit and just looking, searching for plucking tweets out. It's like plucking a fish out of the ocean or something and saying that this is a representative fish. Like there's just, you know, there's some number of people who are regular Twitter users. I'm not sure that number is. I I think it's probably much smaller than Twitter wants us to think. Like maybe it's just a few million and and then you can find some weirdos in in any group. And then like the Twitter group is, is, is more likely to have weirdos in it than, than like the man on the street kind of thing that, um, you know, the reporter would just like walk down the sidewalk and ask, <laughs> can I mm-hmm. ask you a question about something to get a, a, like a regular person's opinion? Like, yeah. And, and then just adding like in the performative aspect of it is that like, this is not the, the reporter asks you, uh, what are your thoughts on the new Star Wars? It's like someone who is feels the urge to tweet out their thoughts because they get something out of that either like self-actualization of seeing their words on the screen or they can get like likes and retweets and clout and so forth by taking whatever position. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, probably, probably a negative or extreme one because you know, that's how you viral. Yeah. Um, Okay. So maybe we should end things there. Is there anything else you want to say about, about Twitter? Would you, okay, here's, here's one last thing and you can say whether you agree or disagree with this in the past couple months, multiple people who are not on Twitter asked me if they should get on Twitter. And I always say no. Uh, Would you agree (laughs) with that? Yeah, I mean, I I try to spend less time on Twitter um, than I, you know, than I did, say, last year. And, you know, every time I'm not on it for a while, I always feel like my life is better. So, yeah, agreed. You know, there's really no reason to hang out there um, unless you're really good at it, in which case there's no reason to hang out with you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's a good final word. Um, Thank God I only have you know, 2,400 uh, followers and, and haven't, <laughs> haven't cracked the code yet. Okay. So Kat, uh, thank you for coming on. So uh, feminine chaos uh, is your show that you co-host with female movie on blogging heads. There's also a Patreon that has bonus episodes and other, other content. And what's, what's the, what's the URL for that? It's feminine or it's pa- patreon.com slash feminine chaos. Yeah. Ma- even more chaotic. Makes sense. Uh, <laughs> so, so people should uh, check <laughs> if you haven't listened to feminine chaos, uh, check it out and then maybe you'll even want to uh, become a, a patron of um, Cat and Phoebe. Okay, so thank you uh, thank you Cat. Uh, thank you to our viewers and listeners. We'll see you again next time.